and welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Colgate alumnus Nick Kakonis. So if this is your first time listening to the podcast, or if you just don't know much about Colgate, I want to take a minute to share some insight into why this show is called 13, other than the obvious 13 questions. So Colgate was founded by 13 men with $13 and 13 prayers. The university is located at 13 Oak Drive in Hamilton, New York, and the first two digits of our zip code are 13, and the last three add up to 13. And every Friday the 13th, Colgate alumni celebrate Colgate Day by wearing school apparel. With that said, let's get back to our guest. Kokonis is co-founder of the Alinea Group, which is responsible for some truly world-class dining and cocktail experiences at the Chicago-based locations of Alinea, Next, Aviary, Royster, and the St. Clair Supper Club, as well as Aviary New York City. In addition, Kokonis is a tech entrepreneur who is founder and CEO of Talk Inc., a specialized suite of digital hospitality tools, including online reservations, and he's co-owner of the design company Crucial Detail. Kokonis's restaurants have earned a total of four Michelin stars, 12 James Beard awards, and Alinea has landed on lists of best restaurants in the U.S. five times. The aviary has been named best bar in the U.S., and in December, Food & Wine named Next as one of the 13 most innovative restaurants of the last decade. Prior to co-founding the Alinea Group in 2004, Kokonis spent a decade as a founding partner in a proprietary derivatives trading firm specializing in equity, currency, and yield curve options and futures. Nick Kokonis, welcome to 13. Man, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> did, I, did I get it all? I, I uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of nuts. It sounds weird. So, Nick, you are our first uh, alumnus on the podcast, and you're oh, also our first by Skype. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Well, I'm going to dive right into question one if you're ready. All right, let's go. All right. So, I want to start from the top for our audience here who probably um, might not know about you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your path from graduating uh, with a Bachelor's of Art in Philosophy at Colgate to becoming a restaurateur and tech developer. That's a, that is a long, that's 13 questions. Cliff, right? cliff notes, cliff uh, notes. Yeah, the cliff notes are that I studied philosophy uh, under Jerry Belmuth, who some of the older alums will certainly remember because he was such a fixture at Colgate. It's very fortunate that he took me under his wing and, and really beat me up in a good way um, and educated me while I was there. And uh, I'd gotten into law school uh, at University of Pennsylvania, among others. Uh, enrolled in a, a joint JD-PhD program at Penn, uh, lasted less than a day, um, just decided that I really didn't want to be a lawyer, and kind of floundered around for a little bit afterwards. Um, and if you grew up in Chicago, you you know or have met people um, that were traders uh, on the trading floors here, because there are 30 or 40,000 people who were. Uh, it was a huge industry before it became digitized. And... Um, Man, it just felt like an interesting puzzle 
uh, and not unlike what I was doing in philosophy. Everyone always asks, like, how'd you go from philosophy to, to trading derivatives? And what I like to say is that it's actually very, very similar. Um, and I, I, two or three of the largest trading firms in the world are actually run by philosophy majors. Um, so huh. I, I went down to the floor of the exchange. I found it. You're either repulsed by that or, <laughs> or, or fascinated by it. I loved it. Um, it was kind of like playing a sport every day. And, uh, you know, I, I did really well at it and I, I, I innovated in, in some unique ways, uh, as I, as I did it, but I started very small, you know, I started with a $50,000 trading account and a mentor and, uh, then built that up to started my own firm, uh, two years later and built that up to, you know, uh, an 80 person firm with no outside investment or anything. So, uh, and then, you know, I emerged with a firm in New York and, uh, you know, kind of got burnt out, um, also did very well and also had a rough year in 2001. Um, father passed away, 9-11 happened and we were active at the, at the exchanges in New York. And uh, at the end of that, I kind of wanted to take a break, but I left, I left my firm and uh, never went back. I thought I would go back and I just never went back. Met Grant Ackett's, um while eating a lunch one day. At, uh, he was 28 years old and he was the kind of person I would have hired for the trading firm. And instead, um, uh, you know, we built Alinea together. Uh, yeah, crazy. It's, uh, that's quite the chance meeting. Yeah, it's more like I was attuned to uh, look for people that I like to call corporate refugees, um, people who worked in companies or for big companies um, and realized that they wanted more independence. They were independent thinkers. They were lateral thinkers and all that. And Grant was all of that, but very committed to being a chef. And so instead of making him a trader, he made me a restaurateur sort of. Hmm. Um, and I felt like I, I could, I knew enough about business and, and, and how to start a business and how to fund one and all of that, that I felt like I could help a really talented person, um, realize some of his dreams. Hmm. Um, and I had done some angel investing in, in the, you know, nineties in early internet companies and whatnot. And so I, I had a reasonable grasp on how to start a company. I was a terrible manager. I'm still learning that. But, um, at the same time, I was very fortunate, uh, that to meet him, but it wasn't, you know, it was like a year and a half of like courtship, I guess, <laughs> before we, you know, we really, I really sort of suggested we do this. So can you talk a little bit about the Alinea Group's family of restaurants um, and bars and maybe just like a short elevator description of each one for people who may not have heard of heard of them before. Or maybe sure. they know one or two. Alinea is the flagship and people always say, like, what kind of cuisine is it? And I just say it's like nothing you've ever, ever seen before. Um, I guess people would call us molecular gastronomy, but it's we like to call it modernist cuisine. Uh, um, it's. It's a you know sixteen to twenty course tasting menu of in, intentionally built to be about constant innovation, but more about an emotional connection with the diner. Um, you have to think about it like going to a theater production of a kind that you haven't been to before. Hmm. And it, we borrow a lot from theater, magic, all those sorts of things. Um, but at the core, the food has to be um, fun and delicious. And if you if you if not, then it's pretentious. And awful. So, Lenny's the flagship Michelin three star. 
Um, after, uh, you know, after a number of years, uh, we came up with the idea for next and, uh, a restaurant is never more popular than the day it opens. Um, and, uh, not actually true, but sort of true. And, um, next is about the constant exploration of world cuisine. So whereas Alinea is about innovation, next is about exploration. So every four months, next changes just like a repertoire theater, um, it changes its menu theme and cuisine completely. So it could be by time and place like Paris 1906 or Kyoto in the spring. Um, right now we're doing a collaboration with Jose Andres, um, uh, the great chef from Spain, who's a really amazing person. He's nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. So we're doing a retrospective of his cuisine. Wow. And then in, uh, for four months, and uh, we've raised almost $150,000 for World Central Kitchen as well, which I'm really proud of. And then um, we're we're uh, we're going to go to uh, a Tokyo menu um, in uh, January, uh, followed by uh, Mexico City um, next year, and followed by uh, the Fat Duck, which is Heston Blumenthal's Michelin three star a collaboration with him. So we've done thirty menus in nine and a half years, which is crazy. Uh, it's like opening thirty restaurants. Uh, then the Aviary is a restaurant for drinks. This is the way you need to think about that. That's the elevator pitch. There. So we got innovation, exploration, and then we took the innovation and applied it to a bar instead of a restaurant. So it's set up like a bar kitchen. Um, we did this in 2010. It's more and more common now, but we were among the first to do something like that. And we've been named best bar in America, the world, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, by the list that keeps such things. Um, and then uh, Royster is really our home cooked meal it's kind of the opposite it's where the, the restaurant is the kitchen the kitchen's the restaurant and so a uh, big central kitchen in the middle um big open fire hearth instead of innovation it's about primitive cooking but really delicious um food in a convivial environment um still innovative in its own way but by looking backwards instead of forwards uh, and then st Clair supper club is in the basement of royster and it's just kind of like this Grant grew up in rural Michigan working at his parents' diner. I grew up going to Wisconsin um, to little supper clubs up there. And if you're from the Midwest and people who've been to Shenango Valley kind of know these places, uh, like it's like the Coonrods kind of place, you know, <laughs> um, for those who who uh, who ventured out of the campus and went to Coonrods and got a coon dog, um, you know, prime rib Friday, Saturday kind of thing and all that. But what we did is we said, OK, let's let's do that. But let's use the ingredients that we would use at Alinea to do this really simple mm. food. So we're doing, you know, uh, Snake River Farms prime rib. You know, um, it's going to cost more, um, and we're going to cook it perfectly. But it's still prime rib with with you know au jus. It's absolutely delicious, and we just elevated it not by by doing any crazy techniques or anything like that, just by doing better product. I absolutely love that the website for the St. Clair Supper Club it looks like it's from like the 90s or that like an old like an older yeah. person not familiar with the internet made it because then yeah. when, when you look at your other restaurant sites they have like these glorious photography and just very like smart design I, I love it we had so much fun doing that website because um, we looked at like all these old supper club we used the way back machine on the internet <laughs> looked at them and like you know like like it says on there, air conditioned, which I just, <laughs> I just love so much. And we intentionally, like, 
we have these wonderful designers, Alan and Sarah Hamburger, that were at Pixar and Industrial Light and Magic. And they, they do all of our publishing. We oh, do that wow. as well. And so we had so much fun um, making bad design on purpose, <laughs> which is really hard to do with people who are so talented. So I was like, maybe we should put an extra space in there, which is an accident, which makes no sense. So I'm glad you noticed that. I had tons of fun doing it. That's very cool. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, so what does Alinea mean? What is the, I guess, what it? The etymology of Alinea is, um, it's a French word, uh, Alinea, um, which means the beginning of a new train of thought. Oh. But it, but it's really the symbol for a new train of thought. Um, there's that thing in English, it's called a pilcro, which doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. We could have called the restaurant pilcro. Um, and it's that paragraph symbol. Um, back in the Middle Ages, when paper was precious, people would, um, instead of indenting and 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 skipping a line and doing a new paragraph, you would just put that thing. Go, hey, new new idea coming. Um, so that's what it means. It's literally the the, the beginning of a new train of thought. Very cool. Um, and you know, I wanted to ask a little bit about next and the the every four month menu. Um, you mentioned a few of the different themes. Um, I saw online too that one was ancient Rome. Um, you mentioned Paris, nineteen oh six, things like that. There, a lot of these sound very liberal arts. Uh, do you have a say in kind of deciding this lineup, or is it chef's prerogative? Um, it's safe to say that uh, I have a say in, in deciding. The <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's always, everything we do is a collaboration with, with a, with a group of people, not just me and Grant. Um, but I, there is an interesting filter that we have to do. And some of that is creative and some of it is economic. We have a 64 seat restaurant with a giant staff. Um, and we need to reach a certain price point to make it work as a business. Um, and while sometimes people will go like, Hey, you should do, you know, colonial Indian food right. or rural Indian food or something like that, all of which is awesome. The difference is, is that people in America, wrongfully, I might add, often categorize certain cuisines as, as street food or cheap food or something like that. One of our best menus was modern Chinese, did not rely on rice. And, and people are like, where's the fried rice? And, you know, uh, the, you know, general sow chicken and all that. It was none of that. Um, it was a lot of vegetables, a lot of seafood, and it had one of our highest cost points in terms of just the quality of, um, you know, you serve catfish, weirdly, um, and you can get really expensive catfish instead of the garbage that most places serve. Um, and people were kind of like, I don't want to spend $135 for Chinese food. I think of that as like takeout, you know. Mm. Um, so one of the things I've learned is that there's the creative aspect of what we do there. And then there's the business side. And I, I generally am the the person that reasons out like what will sell, what will not sell, what people will be excited about. Like we have enough of a following that on Friday and Saturday night, we're always going to be sold out no matter what we serve. Right. Um, but you want to be full on a Tuesday, you know. And uh, weirdly for in America, that means Japanese, uh, Italian, French, uh, what I would call like nostalgic things like we've done menus like childhood or Hollywood. So it's about the movies, things like that, thematic pieces or, um, or the collaboration dinners where we're bringing a restaurant to life in Chicago that will never exist here. Hmm. Um, so, uh, obviously we like to go farther afield. We have Mexico city coming in, in, in summer and we'll do a really, really high end Mexican meal. 
um, which, by the way, like is there. It's part of Mexico. It's an incredibly rich culinary tradition. Um, and yet we'll see whether or not people spend 100 bucks a person for Mexican food. Huh. I think they will now, you know. Um, but I also think there's there's so much political uh, going on with, with Mexico. Like, it's just something we really wanted to do. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really tricky trade-off. And yes, we, we, we'd have fun debating these. And mm -hmm. after 10 years and 31 menus, it gets harder and harder because we, it's, the place is called next. It's not called previous. <laughs> you can't redo it. We can't redo yeah, it. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Is there anything that you'd like to do or, or do you have an example of some, uh, a great idea that maybe got killed? Oh, I mean like, so we like, there's so many different cuisines that we're interested in Indian food being the largest. That's why I thought of it. Mm. But, um, it, what we end up doing is like, instead of just doing like Peru or something like that, we did tour of South America mm. because it has a broader appeal and whatnot. But the, the difference is that doesn't work as well conceptually as going deep on just Peruvian food, in my opinion, but it's more palatable, I think for people to wrap their heads around. Um, and so, yeah, there's just been like, you, you know, we, so many of our customers, like we have thousands and thousands and thousands of people that follow us. So we get, you know, do the Jetsons or something. Like, <laughs> no, that's not like food in a pill. Like that's a great, great idea. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, there's so many that I can't even, I can't even think of all the absurd ideas we've had. Um, but it gets harder every year to, to like, I keep saying, oh my God, I don't know what we're going to do next year. And then somehow we, we manage three more. So I keep threatening to figure out a way to redo the whole thing. And, uh, when we do, we'll do it. But I, you know, we just keep coming up with three new ones that seem to work. So I've heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that you helped design the physical space of Alinea, maybe during the renovations that you did, and that the entryway was heavily influenced by a course you took at Colgate. Is that true? Yeah, all true. That was the original one, though, not not this one. But um, Grant had the idea of of wanting people, when they arrive, to not be quite certain if they were in the right spot. Um, and, you know, Gen Ed 101, so Jen had, you know, much maligned over the years and some people love it. Some people hate it. Um, I think it's awesome. And the reason I liked it so much is because it just forced you to have a true liberal education, take stuff you wouldn't normally take. Um, core of Gen Ed 101 when I was there was a study on Shark Cathedral. And what a lot of the cathedrals used to do, not just Shark, but a lot of them, is that they'd have a pretty small entranceway door. And then when you get through that door, you'd see the, you know, the huge cathedral. And you can imagine what, I mean, probably still impressive now, but probably less so than in, you know, 400 years ago, um, where there weren't skyscrapers around and all that. And you see all of a sudden, you know, an eight-story building, you know, big cavernous inside, and you're made to smeal, feel, smeal, feel small before God. Um, and, and that's, that's, like that stuck with me. Like that's a clever, that's a magic trick, right? Yeah. Uh, that's like great theater. And, uh, you know, the church, if nothing else knows great theater. Um, and so we wanted to invert that essentially. And so that as you went down a hallway that was unmarked, we kind of squeezed people in so that they had to come in single file, but you know, not without saying anything. And then it went, it was a, uh, it was a, a, like a 
depth perception thing. So we took a 30 foot long hallway, made it look much longer by starting it very tall and making it very short. But the the meeting where we were talking about what can we do with this entry hall, like I, I brought up, got, you know, I, I don't remember who my professor was there, but they'd be very proud. Like I pulled up, pulled Sharp Cathedral out of the recesses of my mind. And I'm like, we should make it like the opposite of that. We should make people feel really huge and like important and and all of that. And uh, and we did. And the craziest part is that we built the whole thing having no idea whether it would work or not. And what's really amazing is that the very first person through the front door on May 4th, uh, this will be our 15th anniversary this year. Nice. So May 4th, 2005, um, the day we opened, uh, Sean Brock was the first person through the entryway who is now a very famous chef, uh, Chef Sean Brock. Um, he reinvigorated Southern cuisine and all that. And he was inspired by his meal at Alinea to to go back home and, and redo Southern cuisine in America. So um, really wild that he was our first customer too. Hmm. So I want to, I want to follow the design thread here a little bit. And um, it, the glassware and tableware at, at your restaurants, they, they're almost like works of art on their own, just from the photos that I've seen. Um, and they're not things that you find at typical restaurants, right? Can you tell me a little bit about crucial detail and why it was so important to have custom glassware and tableware, these special specialized settings? Yeah, I'll take the second part of your question first. Um, one of the things that we talked about doing all the time that was really central to Grant's Cuisine was to try to break the monotony of what you do every day when you eat. And so if you think about it, from the time you're a baby, you are shoveling food into your mouth with a few different utensils. In the East, trapsticks. In the West, a spoon and a fork. Um, you can do that in ways that are completely mindless, right? Like you don't need to think about like the cereal bowl in the morning and getting the spoon to your mouth. It's just so programmed into you. And so what we wanted to do is come up with ways that essentially force you to pause and be in the moment, which is harder and harder to do. Um, and so if you ask that question, what can we do to do that, but not make it weird <laughs> or make it weird, but make it like beautifully weird. Um, that's difficult. That's a difficult problem because you still have to feed people. You still want them to eat. You don't want it to be gross or weird or whatever. Right. And, um, so a lot of the, the, the glassware, plateware and whatnot that we have designed serves a couple different functions. One is to take note of the moment and say, whoa, something's different here. I need to pay attention. Um, and some of it is in the service of the actual food itself. So in other words, if you want to serve a small frozen bite, um, often it's going to have to rest in the kitchen, the right timing, they carry it out to the table. And by the time it gets to the table and the description's made, it's going to over temper and, and melt, right? And we've all seen that, you know, just bowl of ice cream being brought out from the kitchen. It's half melted already, yeah. like simple stuff. So like, you know, what can you do? Well, you can create a small piece that has, you know, a different kind of glass inside of it that you keep in the freezer. And then at the last moment that goes into the rest of the vessel and the vessel like, is the outside of it's non heat conductive. So when they touch it, it doesn't, you know, it stays cold. So you can leave something on there for 10 minutes and stays perfectly frozen. I need that. I hate melted ice cream. That's a basic example. 
But some of the examples are, are meant to be emotional. Like we, we have a skewer that comes out. People eat off skewers all the time. Um, this one kind of bobs around a little bit and we put something on it that, uh, you know, it changes all the time. But like one of the courses was something that looked almost like spun glass. And it looks like something that if you ate it, you would rip your mouth apart. Hmm. Uh, but it's really a pumpkin pie. <laughs> oh, wow. So one of the rules that we have is that if we're going to challenge people to do something weird and uncomfortable, um, that the bite needs to be comfort food. And if we give you if something that's more challenging from a flavor standpoint or, or a texture or something that you have, you're less familiar with in eating, we probably put it on a plate with a fork and knife for you. Hmm. Like it, it's hard to challenge people to do both things at once. But I, I guess the more interesting thing here is that we think about all of that. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I mean, there's a, it's attention to detail that goes beyond just yeah. cooking, right? Right. And so, so part of it is, okay, we have this, this great food and this great product from Japan that we just got, and we want to do something cool with it. Now, how can we make people feel something? And that is a very different question um, than just making delicious food. Like we're doing a collaboration right now with um, Let Us Entertain You and, and bringing back an old French restaurant here in Chicago that was one of my favorites many years ago. And it's really an interesting process because they're always asking, well, how do we make the food more delicious? And we should try 10 different kinds of duck and all that. And we go, eh, that's easy. What we want to do is figure out how to make it an emotionally resonant moment, which is hard. Then we can figure out how to make the food taste great because that part's just experimentation and, and palate. So, you know, along the, the lines here of innovation, uh, but in a different sector, um, tell me a little bit about talk and why you started a tech company. Because I always had, I was under the impression that OpenTable kind of took care of online reservations. Well, and they did for, for 20 years. Um, OpenTable was a, a skeuomorphic design, which just means it mimicked uh, what you used to use before a computer existed. So like early Apple stuff, like the calendar looked like a calendar that was on your desk because it was making people familiar with, with the computer. Um, early open table is just like a reservation book. And then it stayed that way for 18 years. So it was great for customers because they could book digitally, not a problem. You click a button, you book. Um, on the back end for restaurants, the software is super janky and, and out of date and old. Um, looks like an old IBM from 1998. And that's about 70% of their installs. And I'm not exaggerating at all. Like I've got screenshots and all that that I take all the time when I go to restaurants. Um, and for my own restaurant, just like we were asking, like, how do we make this great experience happen? In my back office, we would have people calling on the phone in 2010 to make reservations, which made no sense at all. You know, it's like, why are you, I don't want, I've got a computer in my pocket. I don't want you to call my, my pocket. Like, I just don't. <laughs> like, I want you to text me. I want, ironically, we write more than we talk now, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, it, I was just very, very frustrated with the back end of it. And then coming from a, a, a career in derivatives where we process millions and millions and millions of, of, of points of data every day to, to quantitatively trade better. I was like, I can't ask basic questions about my restaurant. I don't even know what my demand is because open table hides that from the restaurant so that they can sell it, sell my excess demand to the restaurant down the street. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So like if, 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 you know, Alinea 
can serve 120 people a night now. Back then it was 80. Um, we could, we might have demand for 500 or 600 people a night. OpenTable would just say, oh, Linea's full. Why don't you go to this place down the street? Mm. Instead of letting us know who that person is and putting them on our email list and all that sort of stuff. So when we opened Next in the aviary, um, I started building um, my own system. I hired a single programmer and I designed a rudimentary system of what I thought would be would be good. And then um, that first year, we had every seat full of the restaurant um, for an entire year. So 100% utilization, which is insanity. Wow. Um, No-show rates in typical restaurants are 15%. Even at Alinea, they used to run 7 or 8%. That's six or $800,000 a year hmm. in our lost revenue. Um, people would book tables of six and show up as two people. Um, and, you know, this is, it's like if you go to a Cubs game and you buy a ticket um, and you don't, the dog gets sick that day and you don't feel like going, you don't ask the Cubs to replay the game. <laughs> like, you know, you don't call them up and say, oh, my dog got sick, I'll have a refund. But for restaurants, that became the norm. Um, and it became the norm because A, it's hospitality industry and that's what people think hospitality is. And then B, the uh, reservations were invented actually in the 1920s with the advent of the telephone. People think that there were reservations in the 19th century. There weren't. Like, it was a foreign concept. Hmm. So anyway, long story short, by 2014, I had about 18 restaurants using this homebrew software. And a couple of, of people copied some of the ideas that I had um, uh, poorly, um, and namely resident reserve. And I just wrote a long blog post and it got read, you know, 300,000 times in the first month. So I gave away a lot of our data. I was very open source about it. I said, here's what we do. Here's why we do it. And here's the results on our restaurant. And a lot of people in the industry, but also a lot of people in other businesses, they actually called it the, I think it was either the Economist or Financial Times called it a humanist approach to economics, which again would be very liberal arts, very Colgate, right? Yep. And, um, you know, like now Professor Richard Thaler is an investor in talk and he won the Nobel Prize in behavioral economics. And he's a good friend of mine, all because of that blog post. Um, not he didn't win the Nobel Prize because of that. Let's be clear. Uh, <laughs> he became my friend because of it. Um, so it's one of those things that like, you know, if you just keep asking the questions and then you keep getting answers you don't like, I tend to be the kind of person that just goes, well, we're going to have to. Oh, sorry. I swore. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We'll, we'll edit that. No, no, you're uh, fine. Keep going. Uh, you know, like, I guess I got to do it myself. Um, and it's not that hard to do it yourself. That's the thing that I don't get. Like, okay, like, okay, I could use OpenTable and be really dissatisfied with it. Or I can find someone to help me build this and invest my time and creativity and all that. And that feels good too. And it might not work and that's fine. Then I'll go back to open table. But uh, now we've got about 2,500 restaurants and 500 wineries, um, 88 employees at last count. We'll probably add another 40 this year where it's operating in 30 countries and it's beautiful software. It's great for the restaurants. It's great for um, diners. Um, we have a major partnership that we're announcing in a couple of weeks with one of the largest banks in the world where TAC will effectively become the rewards dining program for their um, the largest credit card in America. Um, so a lot of really cool stuff, um, but it all comes out of asking that one question 10 years ago. Hmm. You know, why hasn't anyone built something better than this? Because this thing stinks. 
So there was a Chicago Magazine article about you last summer <laughs> that has a funny little story about uh, a dust-up with open table, uh, coincidentally here. Um, and that was at the 2017 National Restaurant Association show. Can you tell me that story? Well, I've got um, – look, when you start a small company, um, our initial funding was $2 million, which sounds like a lot of money. But to start a software company, it's not a lot. Um, you have to rely on the publicity that you can get. And so I knew that if I, uh, started, uh, a website, um, called opentablesaurus.com, uh, they would send me a cease and desist because that's what large companies do. Mm. Um, and all it was, was like, Hey, this is dinosaur technology of the late Jurassic internet period. Uh, you know, circa 19, you know, 88, um, 98, sorry. Um, and I just wrote this, this like funny post saying we, we bought all these little dinosaurs that we were going to have opentablesaurus.com printed on them. And it was going to like take you to a website explaining why the technology of open table is, is terrible and old. And so of course I wasn't actually going to do that because that really wouldn't get me anything. Mm. Um, but I wrote that I was and counting on the fact that open table owned by booking.com, one of the largest companies in America, uh, would send me a cease and desist. And lo and behold, they did. Hmm. <laughs> hey, you have to give this, this website back exactly predictable of what they would do. So I wrote a funny piece about that, gave them their URL back. And then that piece became my marketing piece for talk, uh, right outside my office. I'll send you a picture so you can put it up on the, on the podcast i've got um an eight foot tall animatronic uh dinosaur um that we trot out to various events now weirdly that one piece i wrote on a flight back from san francisco has received hundreds of thousands of views and people still write in every day calling open table dinosaur tech oh, that's fantastic. Um, they want to switch so the funny part about that is is that i got a note from the ceo of open table going brilliant <laughs> Like they get it. Well know? played, like, right? Like I, yeah, right. I, it's like people think that I have hatred for Open Table, and I don't. Open Table is just a company. I don't really like their software very much, and a lot of the people there I do like. Um, when you're twenty eight thousand uh, clients strong and you want to turn around a battleship, it's really really hard to start from scratch. Mm. You can often build better software with thirty people than you can with three hundred. Mm. So, um, uh, Steve Hafner, who uh, started um, Kayak and, and Orbits, like brilliant guy, is now the CEO. They fired all of their executive team last year. I would like to think that our competition had something to do with that. But Steve's a really, really competent and 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 smart and and funny guy. And whenever I do something like that, he's now I'm still riding that one. That one's a couple years old, <laughs> and he's like, he goes, "Man, you're a one trick pony." Like, and I'm like, "Hey, it's working. <laughs> There's no reason to change it." So, you know, it's, it's, we have a friendly, um, uh, frenemy like no, rivalry, but we've, we've taken 8% of market share in North America with a very small company, which is pretty cool. Wow. So you're also a published author, uh, I guess further proving you're not a one trick pony. Um, you've, you've, you've co-written three books, uh, with your business partner. Um, and your most recent work is the aviary cocktail book, which is a massive tome. Uh, of more than 440 pages and stunning photography. Um, and I understand it weighs in at almost eight pounds. 
Yeah. Why why such a lavish book and uh, what's the reception been? Well, let's back up just slightly. Sorry sure. to be verbose, but like when we were going to do what happens in general is if you have a hit restaurant and a, and a chef that's starting to get on TV a little bit, four or five publishers will all give you a book offer that's identical mm-hmm. uh, and identical in such a way that it's almost like there must be collusion, right? So my bells start going off like, oh, these are way too similar to, to be chance. Um, so we got those offers, you know, back in 2007 or eight and I just went like, well, what does it cost to print a book? So if you Google printing costs or New York Times bestseller list, number of books sold or anything like that, Mm -hmm. what you find is precisely nothing. It is so rare to find no information about an entire industry. Uh, It's incredibly opaque. hmm. Uh, And as a trader, whenever you found opaque information, you went, Oh, someone's hiding this because it's good. Right. So the publishing industry is quote unquote dying because of digitization. Right. But the only segment that's growing cookbooks. Hmm. Why? Well, because it requires, it's a better experience in the kitchen to have something that you can spill a glass of wine on. And, and also like it kind of feels tactile. It almost feels like an art piece. Hmm. Right. Um, and so when we did the Alinea book, we really wanted to do our own design and all the publishers wanted us to do stories about the inspiration. And it's kind of like a show don't tell thing. You know, it's like if you have a really good story. Telling your inspiration for a dish is way more boring than showing it. Um, but normal cookbooks, only about 20 percent of the dishes have a picture. Why? They have a 30 day photo shoot. Mm. So like when we started learning the actual process, it's exactly like the record industry. They give you a big advance, then they make you pay that advance back to them essentially. And then you get 10% of, uh, of, of sales after they recoup the thing which they've already recouped. Hmm. Anyway, if you go to Medium and you type in why we are self-publishing the Aviary book, I gave away all of the contract information that we were offered, all of our sales numbers on the previous books, all of that. Um, I'm proud to say that we self-published that book with Alan and Sarah Hamburger, um, pulled them away from their cushy lives at Pixar and, and being nominated for Academy Awards for Finding Dory and all that. And we self-did um, with two incredibly talented people, the Aviary book. I was just looking at our sales numbers yesterday. We sold over $4.5 million of that book in the first 14 months. Um, we have over 50% margins after spending, I think it was about $400,000 on social media advertising. We're a direct to consumer model. So we have no publisher and we have no bookstores other than Amazon and our own website. Hmm. Um, and that's the future of publishing. Um, if, if independent people, artists who have their own following through their own businesses or sports or science, even, or technology, um, and a half million social media followers, why in the world would you want a publisher? Like there's no reason to. So uh, we've got several more books coming out via this model. We're starting to work with some outside folks on uh, doing their books with them uh, as a collaborative environment. And it's really a great outlet. Um, the only exception to that was the book I wrote, um, Grant's memoir with him. And that was terrifying. Um, one of the things that Colgate did instill in you and force you to do was was learn to write 
Um, and, and Falmouth really beat into me to learn to write concisely. Um, uh, because I was, he was, I was one of his advisees and, um, and he thought I was capable, all my papers had to be half the length of whatever the assignment was because he considered that harder to be concise. Mm. So in writing Grant's memoir and trying to get his voice, like I took Grant's notes, interviewed him a ton and all that, but I wrote both parts, both his part and my part. And um, it was terrifying to, to write that, terrifying, because I, I value written word a lot. And I also needed to get his voice sounding like him. So some of the Amazon reviews that I love are the ones where it said like, Grant is awesome as a writer, but Nick's no good. <laughs> Because then I know that I hit both of our voices. So given your track record here, I'm going to guess there's more in store for the world. I guess this is a good segue in you talking about um, other books coming up. But what areas kind of interest you outside of what you're doing now? And do you are there any specific areas that you think might be your next like entrepreneurial venture? Boy, I got to tell you, I'm tired right now. <laughs> is it a, is it a break? No, no, no. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I'm capable of truly taking a break. Um, I am super focused on talk now. We're growing 300% a year, both in headcount, revenue, all that. Mm. It takes up a ton of time every week. Um, we also have all the restaurants. We're building another one this year. We're building um, an event space as well. Um, and But if you ask me like what I would like to do, I've, I've always loved um, theater and movies. Um, one of the really side benefits of of uh having a restaurant like alinea is that i've kind of gotten to meet all my heroes in all of in every aspect of arts science business all of that at least many of them not all of them but many of them and so um what you realize very quickly is that no one's giving anything away um a lot of those people that you go like oh they're just preternaturally talented and they're kind of born with a great voice and all of that well, there's a lot of people with that. And, and what I've learned is a lot of these people work really, really, really hard at stuff. Um, but I have access to them. <laughs> so when I have ideas like, Hey, we want to do this combined culinary slash theater experience kind of thing. Eventually that's kind of never been done before because economically it doesn't look like it'll work and all that. We can call upon people in Hollywood and theaters and all that. I mean, James L. Brooks, I mean, it's public information. James L. Brooks is an investor in a couple of our restaurants and, and talk as well. And, you know, I mean, he, he wrote and directed Terms of Endearment, for Christ's sakes. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so when he comes in and goes, oh, my God, that is incredibly great experience. Like, you've, you've nailed the narrative of that experience at the office, for example, or something like that. Um, like you feel really good about it, but then you also kind of go like, well, what else can we apply these same ideas to? And so I remember I took a great, great theater class with a visiting professor at Colgate that was called Toward a Modern Mythic Theater. And um, you had to write plays for that class. And it was really, um, it was really, really wonderful class. Um, but it was also a really, really wonderful experience to, to sort of be forced to, to, to do things that like you never thought you'd do. And one of the great things is that my wife, who I met at Colgate, um, huh. was telling someone a few years ago um, about this play she once saw. Um, and at the end of it, I said, you've never seen that play. And she said, yes, I have. I said, no, you read it. I wrote it. Ah. And it's never been produced. It was my final project for that class. And she's like, oh my God, I totally thought I had seen it, right? Funny how memory works. Yeah. 
But um, so there's things like that that I want to do. I'm working on a, a fictional book as well that I've been working on for a couple of years off and on, um, which is, uh, you know, a story. But I'm I'm writing that book and the screenplay all at the same time. Hmm. So maybe there'll be the movie uh, eventually. Yeah. You know, I, the answer is I doubt it. Um, <laughs> our Grant's memoir uh, has been optioned um, three times. Um, by um, David Dobkin and by other folks, Robert Downey Jr.'s production company, um, and making a movie, like buying a movie, selling a, a script is very, very different than getting a movie made. Hmm. Um, often takes, like, I, I know a screenwriter that's uh, really successful, multi million dollar a year sales guy, um, writes screenplays and comes in to fix screenplays for studios and whatnot sells them over and over and over again, same movies, you know, 18 month options, has never had a movie made. Wow. Right, so so is he successful or not? Well, in one sense, he's incredibly successful. He's one of the most coveted, like, rewrite people ever. But on the side, he writes plays for small theaters because it's the only thing he can actually see <laughs> come to life. It's a crazy, silly world. So the answer is, it will probably never happen. <laughs> but I will write it. So. It's almost exactly a year ago uh, now that you uh, took to Twitter uh, to invite the National College football champions, the Clemson Tigers, to Alinea for a celebratory dinner after learning that the president was going to be serving them fast food. Yeah. Why did you feel moved to do it? And whatever happened, uh, what was the conclusion of that? Oh, boy. It's so funny how these things happen. So I was I, – I, I did not watch I, – I don't care about college football at all. I, I – I like the fact that Colgate forever had, you know, did not have athletic scholarships, not because there's anything wrong with athletic scholarships to give people opportunity to have a better education, but because it's in other schools of different sizes, it's completely abused. Um, you know, like the LSU quarterback Burrow, like he's never been on campus, like to take a class ever. And I tell people that and they don't believe me, but he's, he's full digital and, and never go, he's not part of the community there. Right. So I, I, I think John Feinstein's book, The Last Amateurs, which covers Colgate basketball, is really, really a wonderful read for those who care about this sort of thing. But then on top of that, like if you're the White House should have some level of aspiration. <laughs> and so finally, I had something where people think I'm an expert in it, i.e. cuisine or experience or hospitality. And I'm watching him serve our old fish sandwiches from fast food companies. And these kids should aspire to something. Most of them are not going to become professional athletes, right? Give them like they're at the white house. That's our national home. It's not anybody's home. It's all of our home. Give them a great experience. You know, it doesn't, I know that they love pizza and they love fast food and they're 400 pound linebackers and all that, but they're linemen, but you know, and so I just tweeted this thing out like saying, Hey, like, if you want to have a real meal, I'll, I'll fly in and show you what it can be. And everyone's like, oh, they don't want like a 20 course. Nah, I'm not stupid. Like we would do the right thing. Mm -hmm. I also knew the second I tweeted it that there's, they could never take me up on it because of NCAA rules. Oh, is that right? Of course. Like I'm not, you know, like it's, it's a hundred thousand dollar offer that can't be redeemed. Oh. But, but, but here's the thing. A number of the players were fans. And this is the cool part that people don't know. So this is a first. Awesome. So a number of, a number of the uh, players, including the center, were foodies. And they privately emailed me and said, hey, when I graduate, 
We would love to come. There's four or five of us that know, know Valinia, know who you are, read the book, saw the Netflix, you know, chef's table episode and all that. And man, I, I would love to come with my family and all that, but I have to do, wait till after I graduate. I can't even like, you know, I, I don't, I, there's no way I want to mess up my eligibility and all that. And so I, I just said like, great, we'll, we'll be happy to have even a few of you in and all that. The, it wasn't really about that. It was just about this moment where I was like watching that picture and just, I was kind of horrified yeah. about just basic decorum, basic, you know, I remember watching um, Professor Kaufman and Professor Balmuth, who couldn't be more opposed academically. In fact, Kaufman probably couldn't be a professor at Colgate anymore or, or almost any school like it because he was incredibly right wing. Hmm. He went to the Heritage Foundation afterwards. Um, I took his, uh, I took his uh, foreign policy since 1945 class. We read Nixon's 1999, which he considered like an advisor. It was actually a really good book. And, um, you know, who's in that class, John Deans, hmm. who is, is the, uh, anchor on New York news Yes. and Monica Crowley, oh, yeah. who's an anchor on Fox news. Yep. We got both ends of the spectrum. Hmm. And I sat in this class that was incredibly compelling because you were able to have this, this, this conversation, um, with a completely respectful, but diametrically opposed viewpoints. Hmm. Um, and I feel like that's, that's getting lost in society. It's getting lost in college campuses. Um, you know, I have a, a, a son who's a student at a, a elite liberal arts um, uh, college now, and it's really lost there. Like you can't have uh, a two-sided conversation. Now, I, the older I get, the more liberal I get. So I, I actually fall on the other side. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like you should be able, I can have a conversation and argument with anybody, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that's the best part of, of Colgate and, and, and those kind of schools. And we really need to get back to that nationally. I did not expect it to go viral. It was the number one article on Eater. Um, and, you know, like we, we had an employee um, a year later actually spit in Eric Trump's face. Uh, and and uh, when he came to one of our restaurants yeah. and we know he was coming. Uh, I was actually in Italy when it happened and my older son was home alone and we, we had, you know, we had security detail at my house Wow. Um, because of this incident, which I, I don't, I don't want anyone to spit in anyone's face. Yeah. You know, I, I, whether I'm a fan or not of Eric Trump doesn't matter. You can have a civil discourse and we're all Americans. So, um, you know, it's a weird time. I'm glad I did it. Everyone started tweeting with this game, like, are you inviting him? And I'm like, nah, that's not the point. Like, you know, I, I it was literally a spur of the moment thing. And, uh, but it was, it's, it's weird. Why should I have a platform? I shouldn't. I just, <laughs> we do cool things. We feed people, we make them feel great. We, I, we, we help them celebrate. But suddenly, all of a sudden, we have, you know, a million social media followers or whatever. So I guess if you feed enough people, you get a platform. It, I, I think it's not just feeding them. I think you, you, it's that emotional resonance. Mm. Like the number of people that come up to me and say like one of the five best nights of my life was at your restaurant. That's so cool. Which is really weird yeah. and great. Yeah. So do you, so it wasn't, there's, there's no slight against fast food. I was going to ask, uh, uh, if you do eat fast food and if so, what is your favorite menu item? Well, so I don't eat a lot of fast food. Um, cause I'm 52 years old and, I shouldn't. Um, do I like it? Yes. I'd probably go with a fried chicken sandwich. 
Um, I have given six talks this year to McDonald's marketing teams. Um, the McDonald's national headquarters, world headquarters, are a couple blocks away from my offices. Um, I've gotten to make, meet many of their executives, and what I what I the way that I started speaking at some of their their marketing teams and and working with them on some other stuff um, is that if you want to change people's eating habits and environmental concerns and all that, someone like um, Alice Waters, you know, local sustainable organic or, or uh, Dan Barber at Blue Hill Stone Barns, mm -hmm. they are the vocal and cultural leaders and all of that. Michael Pollan as a writer, all of that. But if you really want to change it, fix McDonald's stuff because that feeds 78 million people a day. Alinea would have to be open for like a thousand years to <laughs> serve every day, right? Uh, um, Blue Hillstone Barns would have to be open for a million years, mm. right? Um, and so what I found is really, really, really thoughtful people on a battleship. Like they're not, like the people at McDonald's have all these concerns. Like they make a slight change. They serve about 110 million eggs a day. So if you want to change the way chickens are grown, the right person to talk to is the person in charge of procuring eggs for McDonald's. Right. doesn't matter if I want to eat McDonald's or not. Mm -hmm. So I find it to be a fascinating um, company, a fascinating uh, problem. It's kind of like a moonshot, like, you know, to make something that's, that's uh, uh, sustainable, good calories for people, healthy, delicious. Like that's a moonshot. Yeah. Like usually you get to pick two of the three of those and things, fast, right? right? Yeah, eighty seconds, eighty second cook time, ten minutes sit time. Wow. Like these are like the constraints that you have in in fast food, um, and yet like like just it didn't belong at the White House. Hmm. So even though I'm, I'm deeply involved with with all of that, uh, all of those folks, and I find it to be a fascinating, awesome problem, um, man, like like there's such an opportunity there to, to show the best of America. So we're at question 13. Awesome. All right, here we go. So I read an interview that you did with Crane Chicago Business that revealed you find peanuts and peanut butter to be, quote, the most repulsive things to me <laughs> on earth. Yep. So I, I'd like to play a quick game with you where I name a food and you tell me whether or not you'd rather eat that or a spoonful of peanut butter. Oh, it's, it's, I, I can already tell you it's that. Really? Oh all right, all right. Well, it's a short yeah. list, all right? Yeah, yeah. Here we go. Jelly deals. Oh, I've already, I, for sure. Yeah. It's not even close. Way better I than peanut butter? Plenty. Yeah. All right, how about durian? That's a, a fruit that some people say smells like feet. Yeah, well, yeah, or other things. Yeah, right. I've had that too. Way better than peanut butter. All right, Spam. <laughs> oh, fry it up and it's delicious. I know, I love Spam. Loot fisk. Uh, so have not had it, have had the equivalent thing in Japan where it's, uh, for people who don't know what that is, uh, is that, that's not Danish. That's, uh, Swedish or, I think or it's, uh, Finnish. Uh, I'm going to get wrong. We'll have emails telling me, but it's, uh, it's yeah. Cod. yeah it's cod. It's pickled cod that's in a can and the can expands because as it ferments and, and rots, um, <laughs> have not had it. I have had, uh, uh, a very similar thing where in Japan, we were at a temporary restaurant and we ate what looked like a little ayu, which is a river fish that was deep fried. No big deal. Um, it's kind of like a sardine. Um, but this was your reptilian brain turns on. <laughs> 
and tells you fight or flight. I mean, I'm not kidding. It, it triggers fight or flight response. Um, and uh, it's because what they do is they, they used to, back before refrigeration, they'd take all these, these river fish and they'd put them in a barrel and they would bury the barrel and they would first rot and then ferment. And the alcohol would kill off all the bad stuff. Hmm. And lo and behold, they're edible without killing you. Doesn't mean you want to eat them. Um, and we were served that just because, hey, we're adventurous gaijin and, and, and own restaurants and, you know, sure. let's, let's see if they'll eat this weird thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it floored me. Um, I, I gotta tell you, I, I'll go peanut butter on that one. <laughs> oh, all right. I'm so glad I hit one. Yeah. All right. Rotten, the, the rotten fish thing is really tough. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, these, these other ones are probably easy now. So <laughs> this is probably good. Potted meat. Oh, I mean, for sure. Yeah. For potted. Yeah. Uh, canned smoked oysters. Uh, delicious. Yeah. Uh, tripe. Yeah, yeah, all the time. All right. And last one here. So you're good. How right. about how about a balut egg, which would be a mature duck egg? I, I have taken a bite of that. That is also very challenging, but more mental than than taste. So not good. Not good, I might add. So is Again, it I'm gonna go with that with a 50-50 on that one. <laughs> I mean, the rotted fish thing is really, really just a different level. Um, I don't know why I, I dislike peanut butter so much. My kids occasionally, when they were small, we'd go somewhere and we'd get like chocolate milkshakes and they would say, put like a little tiny dollop of, of, of peanut butter in that one. And they would just see if I could taste it. And I always could. Oh, wow. Has, has uh, it, have you always hated it? I, I'm told that when I was very little, I would eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and stuff. Huh. Um, I don't understand it. I don't like it. Um, I actually went for about two months once where I had a, a can of Jif peanut butter and every morning I would be like taking a little bit more. <laughs> like, just to like get over it. Like, yeah. And way, like if I'm served it in a restaurant in a dessert or something like that, I will definitely have plate bites and, and all that. Like I'm, I, yeah. it's really a weird thing for me to go out to eat because I, I don't represent myself. I represent like Alinea and fine dining and all this stuff. So I, I, I have eaten many, many things now that I, I'm kind of a picky eater actually. And I, I do, I've eaten many things. And it's not, it's just mind over matter, except for peanut butter, <laughs> which is beloved by all of America. Oh. Well, that was 13. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us on the show. Um, Thanks. That was the, I love that last question. I've never been asked that before. Oh. I love it. Fantastic. Well, make sure to tell your friends and fa uh, family about the podcast. You can always email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number with your thoughts. Uh, let us know if you have any questions you'd like to have answered. Um, for more in-depth stories about the scholarship and research at Colgate, you can visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com. I hope you have a wonderful week. And as always, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.